talk in the last couple of years about leadership. And uh, COVID has really put the spotlight on our world leaders. And you know, there are a lot more people than probably ever before looking at our, our leaders, the leaders around us, community leaders, government leaders, and talking about the value of good leadership. And in these last couple of years, there have been, there've been some world leaders who've been applauded, you know, and people have uh, they've sort of seemed to have risen to the top and people are pointing to them and saying, wow, you know, they've been just been fantastic. And there have been other world leaders who, well, let's just say maybe they haven't, uh, you know, <laughs> in quite the same way. And of course, the truth is, in the world we live, um, there are lots of our world leaders, community leaders and government leaders, world leaders, who are sort of somewhere in between. You know, and, and some people look at them and they're going and would say, wow, they're, they're just, you know, they're, they're fantastic. I'm right behind them. And there's other people who look at the same leaders and listen to the same words uh, and, and, and follow their same actions and would say, no, look, they're, uh, they're, they're totally off, off base. Um, and I guess I come to this saying that while most of us, uh, you might not have a really clear definition of leadership. You know, leadership might not be something that you think about in your, life, in your daily life. Most of us know what it is to see good leadership. You know, even if you go, oh, I'm not a leader, I'm not in that leadership stuff. Most of us, when you, you see uh, leadership around you, most of us, there's something innate inside us that you can point to a leader and say, you know, that, that person's a good leader. When I was in the final year of my science degree at university, I decided that I wanted to have a go and apply for honours. Um, honours is a, an extra year of research study that happens after a regular degree. And uh, you apply to do it um, with one of the professors, but you've got to get uh, really high grades in third year. And um, I, I thought I would, I would have a crack at this. I thought, you know, maybe I can get my grades up and, and get into honours. And, uh, and so I had to make a decision as to which of my professors I would apply to do honours with. Um, and you know there were a couple that I'm like no I didn't want to be, you know I didn't want to be with them but there were there were two or three uh, men and women who I really admired I really liked their research and the way they went about things and and I honestly couldn't decide who I was going to apply with but I had another uh, problem or challenge at that stage in my life at the end of uh, my undergraduate degree because at the same time my mum was in the final uh, the final phase of her battle with cancer. And, um, and, and literally, in the last week, in, in the week before my third year exams, my mum died. Uh, on the Tuesday uh, of what we used to call SWATVAC, when we were preparing for our, our, our third year exams, my mum died. And so I went to uh, each of the professors that I was considering doing honours with, and I said to them, look, um, I, I'd like to apply for honours, and, uh, and I'm not sure if I want to apply with you or not, but I just thought I'd tell you... Um, that this has happened in my life and I don't know how I'm going to go in my third year exams next week. You know, I don't know. I haven't been able to study much in the last couple of weeks with everything that's happening around my family. Um, and I'm not sure if I'm going to get the grades uh, that I need to get into honours, but I, I just want to let you know, I don't know if there's anything you can do or whatever. And anyway, I, can't, I spoke to two or three people, I had that conversation with them. I can't remember any of the conversations except one. Um, it was with a professor, uh, his name was Russ, and um, I can't remember too much except that when I went into his lab to try and find him, he was in the middle of some, some research, some experiments. He had on his, uh, his lab coat, and he was running around like a crazy guy, uh, going from one thing to another in his lab, and he's sort of trying to talk to me and keep doing what he's doing. 
But when I got to the part about my mum and he realised what I was talking about, I remember that he stopped. He stopped dead. I'm going to get a bit emotional. It's 30 years ago. But anyway, he stopped dead. He turned around. He put a hand on my shoulder. I didn't know this guy really at all. I was just, you know, one of the people in his lectures. He put a hand on my shoulder. And I don't know exactly what he said, but he said something like, don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. You just do your best in the exams and I'll look after the rest. I was, I don't know, I'm, uh, what, 19, 20 or something like that at the time. I didn't know what leadership was. I didn't know what good leadership was. But I knew that was it. You know, in that moment, and actually in that moment, I decided that he was the guy that I wanted to apply with. I thought, if that's the kind of guy he is, if that's the sort of the way that he, he leads, that's the kind of guy that I want to do my honours year with. Um, welcome to the final part of uh, our Surviving and Thriving series, um, where we're walking through the book of 1 Peter in the Bible. Um, 1 Peter is a letter that the disciple Peter, uh, Peter who uh, lived with Jesus, the disciple Peter wrote to a number of churches about 30 years or so after the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And he writes to a group of churches that are doing it tough, doing it really tough. Roman Emperor Nero has made it legal to persecute Christians and to discriminate against Christians. And if, you, if you've heard any of those stories in history about Christians being burned at the stake and fed to lions and whatever, that's this time in history. Right? That, that's the stuff that Roman Emperor Nero said, we can do that, it's okay to do that. And so these tiny little churches, um, and they don't have buildings, they don't have names, they don't have money, they're, they're little groups of people meeting in homes and in community spaces. They're doing it tough. And Peter writes this letter to encourage them in their faith and encourage them in their, in their walk and in their life as a church. He writes about the awesomeness of a life lived with Jesus. And he says uh, in the first part of his letter, he says that, you know, whatever the world throws at you, however bad things get in the world around you, there's nothing that can be as bad as, as the goodness or as the awesomeness of a life lived with Jesus. That, that life lived with Jesus is better than the worst things that can come at you from this world. He goes on to write that, that therefore, in light, uh, considering how amazing Jesus is, that we should live lives that uh, we, uh, the word he uses, we should live holy lives. We should we should not sort of follow the patterns and the behaviours and the attitudes of the world around us, but but we should sort of stand apart from that, and we should live lives that follow the example of Jesus, of this awesome Jesus. And he goes into detail in the letter about what that kind of life looks like in our community in our workplaces, in our marriages, wherever we are. Um, he reminds us that, that uh, you know, in our suffering, um, that remember that Jesus suffered too. Uh, and he actually says that, that in that way, when we suffer, when things get tough for us, it's actually drawing us closer to Jesus um, because we're, we're in a way we're more able to relate to the life and the example of Jesus because uh, if things are tough for us, well, then, you know, things were tough for Jesus. It, it, it's like, you know, we're, we're joining Team Jesus in a way. And this week, uh, we're going to wrap up Peter's letter, uh, the last chapter of his letter, as he gives us his final thoughts uh, to these churches and to these Christians. 
So, um, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. Um, remember we said paper Bibles, you start from the back, you've got Revelation, and then you move forward. There's a couple of little books, um, uh, Jude and 1 and 2 and 3 John, and then you'll bump into, uh, into 1 Peter. I'm going to do the same that I've done uh, in every week in this series. I'm going to read all of the text. I know it's a chunk of text. I'm going to read all of the text, um, and then we're going to go back to the top and just sort of work through it and see what this has to say to us. So we are in 1 Peter chapter 5, um, and I'm beginning to read uh, right from the top, from verse 1. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and as a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Because God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered for a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peter wraps up his letter talking to the leadership of the churches. Um, basically, Peter's saying, if these churches, if your churches are going to survive these tough times, they're going to need good leadership. Okay, it's not just about the people in the churches. If the church is going to make it, you're going to need good leadership. Uh, or what does Peter think a good leader looks like? It's right there in verse 2 where he says, they look like shepherds. He says, be shepherds uh, of God's flock. Now, I want to tell you, this isn't an idea, this idea that, uh, that leaders are like shepherds. This isn't an idea that Peter made up. Uh, this is an idea that Peter learned. John, who was another disciple of Jesus, he tells us in his gospel about a conversation that Peter had with Jesus after the resurrection. Uh, and This is uh, John 21.16, for those taking notes. Um, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, which is another name for Peter, that's a whole different story. Uh, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And, and, and he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, take care of my sheep. Take it. That, that's what you ought to do from here on in. Take care of my sheep. Now, I want to, that phrase, 
take care of my sheep. That's actually the same Greek word that is translated in 1 Peter as be shepherds. Isn't that cool? Like it's a, we're really like it's different. But it's actually the same word. In other words, Peter is just passing on the leadership definition that Jesus taught him. When Jesus said to him, you know, a good leader, if you want, if you want to lead this group, you need to lead like a shepherd. And then Peter goes on and he, he identifies three sort of key traits of what the shepherd leader looks like. First thing he says is, they lead willingly. Verse 2, watch over them not because you must, but because you are willing. Second thing he says is, they must, uh, they're not greedy or self-serving. Again in verse 2, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. The New Living Translation says, uh, not for what you'll get out of it. Uh, the New American Standard Version says, not with greed. Godly leaders uh, lead for the good of those they lead, not for their own good. And the third thing he says, lead willingly. Um, uh, they lead willingly. They're not greedy or self-serving. And the third is, they're not domineering. They're not kind of, you know, over other people in their leadership. And verse 3, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples of the flock. Uh, there's a popular term in, in leadership now um, called servant leadership. The idea that the leader is the servant of the, the people, in a sense he's almost sort of, he or she is under the people rather than over the people. And Peter says that this is the kind of leadership that God will reward. Verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. But Peter goes on to say, but it's not just about leaders humbly serving their people, it's also about uh, those who are being led humbly following the authority of those who lead them. Verse 5, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. Now, if you were here when we talk about marriage, this might sound strangely familiar because Peter's using the same picture of humility and mutual submission that he talked about when he talked about masters and slaves, when he talked about people in, uh, with our governments, when he talked about marriage, and now he's talking about it in terms of leadership, uh, those who are leaders and those who are being led. So, just in case you missed it, and Peter repeats it for what I know it must be like the 57th time in this letter, in verse 5, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. If you haven't got it by now in 1 Peter, this is the way Christians lived. They honoured one another, they respected authority, they trusted God. That's what Peter means when he says in verse 7, uh, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Peter's saying, if you're not sure about your leaders, if you're a bit anxious that, that you know, your leaders might not be doing the right thing, remember that you have an ultimate leader above those leaders. Right? He calls them the chief shepherd. Did, did you pick up that, that phrase? Like, like that, that's a, a, a phrase he's using to talk about Jesus. And he's saying that, that, yeah, okay, you've got these shepherds over you, you've got these leaders over you, but then over them is the chief shepherd. So he's saying, no matter what the little leaders do around you, you know, maybe they're good leaders, maybe they're bad leaders, um, but you've always got someone that you can cast your anxiety on. You've always got someone who's caring for you. Even if your little leaders who are over you don't seem to be doing a good job, you've got a chief shepherd who is above those shepherds. Does that make sense? And so, so, so Peter's saying, 
So you've always got someone that you can cast your anxiety on, that you can give your stress and your worry to, because there's someone who cares for you. That's good news, isn't it? Peter goes on to wrap up his letter with a reminder that our real enemy, the, 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 the real enemy that is causing us suffering and stress and, and trouble in our world, is Satan. He says, um, and the real enemy, it, it's not the people who are around us, it's not those who are actually uh, sort of doing the things to us or saying the, the things to us. Our real enemy is Satan. Verse 8, be alert and of sober mind. It's the third time he's used that phrase in this letter. And it's, it's Peter's way of saying, get your mind on straight, get clear thinking, get really focused on what I'm about to say. Verse 8, your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, stand firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. Your real enemy, the, the enemy behind your enemies, if you like, is Satan. Resist him and stand firm against him in your faith. Because remember, you're not alone in this. You know, when you look around you, when you look at your little church and your little group, remember that you're not alone in this. The family of believers throughout the whole world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. This isn't just about you and your church, you and your family, you and your workplace, you and your situation. He's saying Satan is attacking Christians and churches all over the world because that's what Satan does. Verse 10, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. What a beautiful closing statement that is. Peter reminds his, his readers, he reminds these early Christians that they are called to an eternity with God, that there is a place for them coming where they will be fully restored. And, and I want to say, when he says that you might have to suffer for a little while, when he says a little while, he's talking about this life. Right? Sometimes in our, in our modern world, we think a little while is five minutes or this week and then everything's going to be all right. When Peter says a little while, he's comparing that to eternity. Right? He's saying, he's saying, a little while, in this life you might have to suffer. But there is coming a, there is coming a place, after this short stay on this, on this earth, there is coming for us an eternity where we as Christians will find ourselves restored and renewed and, and in a place of, of, of absolute peace and joy and wonder. That's what it is to look forward to. He's not saying that your, your earthly troubles are all going to magically go away in the next five minutes. He's pointing to life beyond this one and to the wonder of an eternal life with Jesus. Peter concludes his letter by telling them uh, again that, that the purpose of his letter is to encourage them. Uh, verse 12, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother. Um, so Silas actually <coughs> physically helping him to write the letter, most people think. I've written to you briefly, encouraging you, uh, and, and encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Uh, Peter sends his greetings, and he sends the greetings from she who is in Babylon. 
which is a weird phrase that most people think probably means the local church in Rome. Babylon was another was a kind of a, a code word for Rome, and, and, and most people think that when Peter writes this letter, he's physically living in Rome, and so what he's saying is, uh, I, I send you my greetings, but also the little church that I'm a part of here in Rome, they send you their greetings too. Um, as we says, you know, she was in Babylon, chosen together with you. You know, you're chosen there. These people who are chosen here send you their greetings, um, and so does Mark, who's another Christian leader. And then he wraps up his letter with a, that's a traditional uh, Jewish greeting. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Uh, peace to all of you who are in Christ. So what do we do with this final chapter? Because it, it would be easy to read this, uh, to skim read this and to think, well, I'm not a church leader, so this doesn't really apply to me. I can just grab verse 7. Casting her anxieties on him because he cares for you. I can just grab that and stick it on the fridge because that's a good verse. And I can kind of ignore the rest, right? But I think that if we do that, we miss something potentially really powerful in what Peter's saying. Because Peter's talking about leaders in the church. But I want to suggest to you that there's actually principles here for anyone who's in leadership. And further, I want to say that we all have leadership somewhere. Now, maybe you're not a church leader. Maybe you don't own a company. Um, maybe you don't have people who report to you at your workplace or whatever. So maybe you don't have that kind of leadership. But leadership guru John Maxwell says that leadership is influence. He said, really, at its foundation, that's what leadership is. Leadership is influence. Influence, And so in that sense, we all have leadership because we all have influence. I mean, if you're a parent, you have influence. You're a leader. If you, uh, if you work with other people, even if you're not their boss, if you work with other people, you have influence. You're a leader. If you've got friends, if you've got family, if you've got neighbours, you have influence you're a leader. And so I actually think there's, there's lessons in here that all of us can take and apply to the relationships and the workplaces uh, and, and the communities around us that we have influence in. So I want to go back to those, uh, to those three things um, that, that, that Peter identifies as key to being this kind of shepherd, this kind of godly leader. Remember he said the first thing was that we lead willingly. The first thing is to acknowledge that you've got influence and willingly use that for good. And when you think about it, every conversation, every interaction you have with someone is influencing that person. The words that we use, the clothes that we wear, the things that we post and share online, the actions that we take, we're influencing other people all the time. And the first thing that Peter says for godly influence is lead willingly. Recognise that opportunity, embrace that opportunity, take hold of that opportunity and use it for good. You know, when you post something, when you say something, when you do something, recognise that you're exercising influence on other people. Use that influence for good. Use that influence for godly purposes rather than for 
you know, a whole bunch of other things that it's really easy to, uh, to use our influence for. Lead willingly. Don't be greedy and self-seeking. Don't see friends and workmates and people in your family. Don't, don't see others as things for you to use, but rather put others above yourself and look for ways that you can serve other people. The truth is, when we use a word like leadership, many of us think about leadership as an opportunity to get things our way. You know, leadership is my opportunity uh, to have people do what I want them to do and to make the world the way that I want it to be. And that's true whether, uh, whether it's positional leadership, you know, whether you're actually sort of a leader in your job or your workplace or a community group or whatever. But it's also true socially and with friends, isn't it? Many see our, it's easy to see our influence on people around us as, you know, I, I want to get my friends to all think the same way that I do. I want to get my family to all do what I want them to do. And what Peter's saying is that the reality is that each of us have a choice. Uh, we have a, a daily choice, actually a moment-by-moment choice. Will we see our influence, will we see the influence we have with other people as, uh, as sort of an, an opportunity to serve myself or an opportunity to serve others? Will, will I use my influence sort of to get or to give? Godly leadership asks, how can I use my influence, not for me, but for others. Godly leadership asks, how can I use my influence to make your life better? How can I use the influence that I have in your life to build you up and to encourage you to draw you closer to who God wants you to be? I mean, guess which kind of leader people would rather follow? You know, I mean... Would would people rather follow someone who's got their own needs in mind? Or, you know, would I rather follow someone who's got their needs in mind? Or my needs in mind? Because the truth is, there's a kind of following that we do because we have to. You know, sometimes when when someone's in a... When someone sort of has a, a positional authority over you, you have to follow them. But only so far. You know what I'm saying? And... You know, there's a kind of leader that we have to follow, but there's also a kind of leader that we want to follow. You know, there's a kind of leadership that you follow because, well, yeah, they're the boss and so I've got to do what they say. But there's also a kind of leadership and a kind of influence that we want to follow because of the kind of person that they are, because they're going to invest in us. And looking back on it, that, that's what I saw in Russ that day in the laboratory when he put his hand on my shoulder. He made it really clear that he was interested in in me. But all of us, this wasn't a conversation about what I was going to bring to his lab. This was a conversation about me. And he was interested in me. And that's what it was that made me look at him and say, that's the kind of leader. I wanted to follow him all of a sudden. Lead willingly. Don't be greedy or self-seeking, uh, self-serving. And don't be domineering over others. Peter says, be examples to the flock. Because you can be domineering, you know, in your influence or your leadership. You see these people, you see these people online and, you know, maybe in your circle of friends all the time. Um, you know, you can be domineering and you can be over the top of people and you can get things done. You can probably even get promoted. And if you have a title or position, you know, and some of us do here, if you've got a title or position, you can lead like that and people will follow you 
for a bit. You know, you, you can be that kind of person who, who's, you know, just beating down on people on social media and whatever. You know, you'll get a few likes and, you know, people will follow you for a bit. But the best leaders, you know, godly leaders, they don't need that kind of title and influence. They don't need to be domineering over people to sort of force them to follow them. They're the kind of leader that people want to follow. I mean, have you ever thought about it? Jesus had no positional power. You know, Jesus never held a position in the synagogue system, in the religious system of his time. He was never the chief priest. He was never someone that people had to follow. People followed Jesus because they wanted to follow him. And I actually started thinking, when you think about it, some of the, the most famous, the most, um, uh, what do you call them, most sort of applauded leaders um, in our generation, in our time, they're actually the same way. I mean, you think about names like Martin Luther King, uh, people like Gandhi, uh, Nelson Mandela, even stories, you know, movie stories like Braveheart. You know, these are leaders that nobody had to follow any of those people. None of those people sort of had positional authority where you had to, people wanted to follow them. The truth is that all of us want to have influence and would love to have influence and a positive influence over people who don't have to follow us. I mean, you th even if you're in a workplace and you do have some people who have to follow you, you've also got a bunch of people in your workplace that don't have to follow you. Colleagues or people in other parts of the organisation or, or other organisations who you've got to work alongside. They don't have to follow you, but you want them to. But think outside of work. Think about marriages, families, friendship groups, you know, volunteer organisations inside the church. Eventually domineering leaders, eventually that kind of leadership will always run out of influence. Because eventually you'll always bump into people who say, you know what, I actually don't have to do what you tell me to do. I don't need to follow you and I'm actually going to go over here. But godly leaders who, who, who sort of put others above themselves, who look to the needs of other people before them, they're the people that will, that will get people to follow them for the long term. That people will follow because they, that they want to follow them. And of course eventually they're the kind of people that, that don't just sort of you know, change their little team and their little organisation. They're the kind of people that can have the sort of influence that change the world. The lesson in all of this is that you don't need a title or a position to be a leader. You know, you don't need to, to have boss written on the door of your office. You don't need to have an office at all to be a leader and to have influence. All of us have influence. All of us have the opportunity and the responsibility to use our influence for the good of others in ways that expand our influence and accelerate the positive change that we want to see in the world. Peter writes to churches that honestly look like they're facing extinction. I mean, talk about leadership. These tiny churches, they had no authority. They had no position. They had almost no resources, as in you know, money and, and stuff and buildings. They had none of the sorts of things that, that we would think you would need to survive and to thrive and to prevail. 
On top of that, they're being trodden on by the greatest empire in the history of the world. How did these churches possibly survive? You know, this is 30 years after uh, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We're talking just a handful of little churches uh, dotted across that part of the world. How did this thing possibly survive? And the answer is, in part, significant part, that they lived out this kind of leadership. That they lived out this kind of influence. When no one had to follow them, they lived out a kind of life that people wanted to follow. They loved one another. They respected the authorities, even when the authorities were wrong or were cruel. They lived with humility. They put others first. They led willingly. They put others first. They weren't domineering over people. They exercised whatever influence they had in godly ways. Listen to this. And it worked. 300 years after Peter wrote this letter, Roman Emperor Julian would write this about the Christian church 300 years later. Christianity has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers. It's a scandal that there's not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the Christians care not only for their own poor but also for ours. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. 500 years after, uh, after Peter wrote this, Christianity had overtaken the Roman Empire. It worked. And here we are 2,000 years later. Uh, there's around about 2.5 billion people on the planet who would say, I follow Jesus. And the Roman Empire is only found in history books and in ruins. These tiny churches changed the world, literally changed the world, by living out this kind of influence. And so I guess if, if we can wrap up 1 Peter in any way, it's to say that Peter's message to our church, to this church, is probably pretty much the same as the message that he gave to that church. Which is that living out this kind of godly life and living out this kind of influence, that this church can change the world too. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered for a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen.